0: break through our illusion of separation. And I know today's show, it will not disappoint you. I can't wait to introduce our guest here. So by now, most of us have heard stories of near-death experiences where someone dies and comes back to life with a dramatic shift in perspective and a deeper understanding of life, love, death, and healing. But now imagine this. After suffering from cancer for several years with malignant tumors throughout her body, our guest today was in a coma and given just hours to live. She not only returned from her near-death experience, but also experienced a miraculous spontaneous healing. Yes, she was cancer-free within, I think, five weeks is what she says. I invite you to take a few deep breaths. Bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I introduce my guest. Anita Morjani is a cancer survivor whose near-death experience taught her the purpose of life. Anita's story gained international recognition after the release of her New York Times best-selling book, Dying to Be Me. My Journey from Cancer to Near Death to True Healing and Subsequent Media Appearances on PBS with Dr. Wayne Dyer, National Geographic, CNN, Fox, and many others. She's a highly sought after inspirational speaker who uses her experience to teach others about living fearlessly and true healing. Anita is a regular blogger for the Huffington Post, and her story is currently being considered for a major motion picture in Hollywood. Welcome,
1: Anita. Wow, thank you so much for that, Dr. Julie. It's such a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Oh, thank you. You know what? I have to tell you, I... um. I have so many amazing guests on my show, and it just makes me happy, all the different connections that I make. And I have to tell you, a couple months ago, I I, I just was hearing your name everywhere, and people were like, have you read this book? Have you read this book? Have you read this book? And all of a sudden, after like the third or fourth time, I thought, oh, I need to... I need to pay attention. And um, I was on a trip and had a really beautiful conversation with a family that was so touched by your book. They had lost their son. And so after that, I thought, wow, they they asked me, have you heard of Anita? And at that same time, I came home and your publisher had reached out to me. And I thought, yes, this is good. So (laughs) I am really happy to have you on our show because your book has touched so many people that i love and that i care about and i know i'm just mentioning that you're going to be on the show um lots of people have said oh yay i can't wait so i do have a traditional first Mm -hmm. question here for you anita that we always like to really put um the context of our show into this bigger meme so i'm going to start with this question what does all Mm -hmm. things connected mean to you
1: Okay, it means that we share the same consciousness or we share the same energy. And I use this analogy to explain it because most people uh, don't realize how we can be separate and we can be one at the same time. So for those who've read my story, you'll know that I said that when I crossed over, I could feel what everyone was feeling. In other words, when I was no longer expressing from my physical body, I was pure awareness, and I could feel everybody's emotions as though they were mine, and so it 's like we are all connected so the analogy I use to make that clearer is that if you imagine just imagine in your in your mind your hand with the five fingers now imagine if those five fingers believed that they were separate individuals. And they believed the other fingers were separate individuals. And so those five fingers competed with each other, beat each other up, were jealous of each other, fought each other. And one day when they died and they crossed over, they could see the palm, they could see the whole hand and they realized, oh my God, we are all part of the same hand, which is like being part of the same consciousness. If only we knew this we could have worked together we could have <clears throat> we could have collaborated and as a hand we could have done so much more than each finger competing with each other mm.
0: You know, this is one of the things that I have appreciated about you most is your use of metaphor. You do a really beautiful job helping us understand a really complicated, complicated complex is what I was going to say. And it's both a complex, complicated topic of our consciousness and our awareness and this other realm that you're talking about. And you've done a, a beautiful job of helping people experience it because there's not a lot of language for it. So I love the idea about the hand and the fingers and that that's really beautiful. Let's talk about your story. I want to get into all the lessons and oh my gosh, the healing to me is so significant and I really want to give time for that. But your backstory leading up to your your cancer and your illness and then the near death is really an important part of this Whole message that you give. So let's let's just start there by having you just tell us a little bit about your life and and what led to this cancer and this whole ex- healing experience. You say, I, I think you said cancer saved your life. So I, let's put that into perspective. Yes.
1: yes, I felt I was killing myself even before I had cancer because I was someone who lived a life of fear. All my choices were made from fear and not love. And whether we realize it or not, every time we're making a choice in our life, which is pretty much all the time for every single thing, we're making selections and choices. Those choices are being driven from either fear or love, even though we don't realize it. Like, it can be subtle, it can be on a subconscious level. And all my choices were being driven by fear. And here's what I mean by that. Like, if even when I chose foods to eat... I ate very healthy, by the way. I I ate organic. I was vegan. I grew my own wheatgrass. But the reason I ate healthy was because I feared cancer, not because I loved my life. I loved myself and I wanted to live long. It was because I feared cancer. So I was obsessive about health because I was determined not to get cancer. And so every choice of what to eat was driven by fear. And what ended up happening? I got cancer and so many of the choices in my life were made to please other people and so it wasn't about me choosing for example work jobs and work because i was passionate about what i was doing or because it was what i wanted to do or the career i wanted they were chosen because i was afraid if i didn't have this job um how it would affect my career what it would look like i wouldn't have enough money and so on and so forth and it was when I was lying in that hospital bed dying, and maybe I've jumped ahead a little bit, that I realized that every choice I had made in my life up to that point had been made from a place of fear.
0: Anita, can I just pause right here? Because I think this is really important for our listeners and and everyone hearing this story, because um, I really want to kind of discern the kind of fear that you're talking about, I don't imagine you being obsessive compulsive or having anxiety disorders or whatever, but there's a subtle energy of fear and that need to please and what have you. So can you explain what you might mean by that fear of cancer, that fear of, yeah, Mm -hmm. it was, I mean, literally, were you in a panic and germaphobic and, and, or were you just, Always being mindful of things from a fear
1: base okay, so on the surface of it i didn 't appear obsessive compulsive, um, so because I actually believe a lot of people are harboring this kind of fear um, at some level and and a lot of the reason why it 's there. Is because the media does it to us, and we 're constantly feeling that we 're not good enough we don 't measure up the other thing is we 're being bombarded by cancer campaigns that one in three people are going to get cancer, everything causes cancer and I clearly remember um, you know a part of it was because my best friend got cancer and my and my husband 's brother in law got cancer, and they were both my age and so I remember hearing ads and things say one in three people are going to get cancer because of the condition of our food and our world and everything. So I remember going to a talk one day where all they talked about was how bad everything was for us and how the pesticides mm-hmm. were going to kill us and, and how the um, hormones in the meat was going to mimic our hormones and kill us. And, and one day everyone would say eat so, drink soya milk, switch from, um, from cow's milk to soya milk, soy, uh, tofu and soy prevents cancer. And the following month or something, you would see everybody, you would hear everybody saying all over the internet, don't drink soya. It mimics your, your hormones and it causes breast cancer. And now it's being touted as the worst thing you can have if you have too much. So, you know, it was, mm-hmm. I was, I started to become really obsessive about everything I was putting into my mouth because I was watching two people die from cancer. And I just, my world started to become smaller because I became afraid of everything like um, microwaves, plastic containers, um, sugar, alcohol, like everything, pesticides and mm. food. Now I'm not saying those things are good for you, but, um, I today I handle it very, very, very differently because one of the things I learned is that this fear, uh, what it does is that we feel that we constantly have to monitor our body. So I was on the Internet um, obsessing about how not to get cancer and I would research all the latest supplements and I would order them um, but what it's doing is that we're constantly then sending the message to our body that our body does not have the wisdom to live just to live every day just to take care of itself let alone heal from a serious illness but to even function we're sending our body the message that just to function it needs it needs intervention it needs me to use my mind to figure out how to constantly help my body to function and optimize it. And what that does is it has the opposite effect on on my body because I've now told my body in no uncertain terms every single day that you don't have the wisdom. I have to constantly figure it out and do the research. Whereas Mm -hmm. I've realized now after having that near death experience that my body is incredibly wise. It has the wisdom And it doesn't need my mind to constantly stress about it. I can release my mind completely. And so much more energy gets released to nourish and look after my body. I was making myself sick with that worry. Um, And what happens now is that my body knows what it wants. It knows what it doesn't want. It doesn't need a heap of supplements. I barely take any supplements today. Um, Only when I need them, I maybe take one multivitamin and then others only when I feel the need. Um, And I am so much more lax about my diet. I still eat clean, healthy food, but I realized I couldn't be a vegan because my body told me. And the more we relax and the more we trust our body, Our bodies communicate with us and tells us what it needs through visualization, through actually certain feelings and emotions when we're facing certain foods in front of us. So the more we trust in its wisdom, the more it will communicate with us.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you for just letting me um, interject that because I think really defining that fear is important for us because there is so much out there in the media, and we're not learning to trust that that innate wisdom that's right there. So I, I think that's a really important lesson that that you've learned and that that is really important for us to share. So you are in this place of fear. You're trying to prevent cancer. And you're yes. diagnosed with lymphoma. Let's let's go back to that story.
1: Yes. So I was diagnosed with lymphoma. And interestingly, um, at that point in life where I was in this place of fear, fear of cancer, fear of everything I put in my body, I was also a people pleaser, always made myself a doormat for other people. You see, the thing is what I realized, it's all related, even though it sounds different, is that when you are a fearful person who does not love yourself, uh, you lose yourself to everything that is outside, everything from what the media tells you, from what's happening to other people around you. Um, So it's all related. So I never loved myself. I was always a doormat. And so now here I am diagnosed with cancer. And interestingly, one of the, um, uh, of course, it was very, very fearful. It was shocking to be diagnosed. But for the first time, I felt that I could give myself permission to take care of myself and to put myself first. And I had never been able to do that before. I'd always felt I had to give and give and give of myself. I didn't want anyone to think I was selfish. Hmm.
0: Wow. Okay. So here you were in this state of, and you know, you grew up, you wanted to please your parents. You're wanting to please everybody else. And you're right. (laughs) We, we tend to, in this culture, you were, you were in Hong Kong, but here in, in America, where most of our listeners are literally our culture does have expectations and we want to please. And so this cancer comes and you literally were treated for years and it progressed and progressed. Tell us about that journey.
1: So it progressed for four years. Um, It seemed to, it, it, it seemed, the tumors seemed to shrink for a little bit, two years into my journey. Um, and the thing is, I felt like I tried everything. I tried every natural treatment as well um, and I tried everything. And then right at the end of my journey, and oh, and I absolutely feared chemotherapy because I watched my best friend die and she had like the the best treatment, supposedly the best treatment that money can buy at the top cancer hospitals. And yet she was still dying of cancer, so i would wa- I watched her and became even more fearful about what was happening in my own body, and just felt that i this is what's in store for me, no matter what i do and um but by towards the end, my body had deteriorated so much um I weighed about eighty five pounds. My muscles had deteriorated. I could no longer walk. I could no longer even hold my head up um, because my, even my neck didn't have the strength to keep my head up. My lungs were always filled with fluid. So even if I lied down, I would choke on my own fluid. So I was constantly, um, the doctors were constantly removing fluid from my lungs. I was having constant blood transfusions. Um, And I had these big open skin lesions and I was breathing with the aid of oxygen, an oxygen tank. And so if I went anywhere, it was in a wheelchair because I could no longer walk. So these were in my final months and I was just in so much discomfort. And even then I never wanted to stay in the hospitals. I would be going in and out of hospital, but I would want to be at home in between. And, um, Finally, on February the 2nd, 2006, um, I was at home in the morning, but I fell into a coma. I didn't wake up and my husband was frantic and he called my doctor and my doctor already knew that th- what this meant, but he told my husband to bring me to the hospital right away. So they had me brought to the hospital and as soon as the doctors looked at me, my body apparently had swelled up and they knew that this meant that my organs were now shut down. They were slowly shutting down one by one. And so they did run some tests while I was, even while I was in the coma. Um, my lungs were filled with fluid. They took out the fluid. They run ran the test. And then they told my family that my organs, my kidneys and, and liver and everything were now shutting down. And these were my final hours and that I was not going to come out of the coma.
0: Mm. So the the end of the end is right here. They call in your brother. You're in the hospital. Yes. You're in this coma and it looks dire. And yet as your family begins to try to grasp what that means, you're in a new you're in a different state of awareness. You are you are in a whole different place experiencing life from a very different vantage point. Do You want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. So even though my physical body was in a coma and my eyes were closed, unbeknownst to everyone around me, I was actually aware of everything that was happening. I could see, hear and feel everything that was going on uh, around my physical body and beyond. And it was a very different type of vision because it wasn't like vision from my physical eyes. When we look with our eyes, we can only see what's in the direction that our vision or our face is facing. But from that realm, I was no longer expressing through my physical body. It was like my consciousness had expanded and it was beyond my body. So it was no longer expressing itself through my body. But it didn't feel contained anywhere. It was outside of my body. And it was like my awareness or my vision was like 365 degree peripheral, 360 degree peripheral vision. Like I could see everything all around my body, above, below, and beyond. And it was like I was aware of even things that were happening outside the hospital room, conversations that were taking place between the doctors and my family. And they were telling my family about how dire it was and and that I wasn't going to come, come out, that I wasn't even going to make it through the rest of the day and that I was not going to be there tomorrow. And then, though, I started to realize that I could continue to expand and I was not limited to just being there in the hospital. And I started to become aware that even my brother, who was in India, was um, was rushing to get on a flight to get to me in time before I died. And I felt as though I could even feel his emotions. And so I felt that I needed to stay alive at least until he got there to see me because I felt that he would be devastated if he arrived and I was already gone. Um, And then I became aware of my father who had died 10 years prior to me having this experience. And I felt that my father was there to help me and to guide me through this, and I felt that he had been there for a long time, like throughout the time that I was sick. And he had been taking care of me and even sending me signs and signals, but I hadn't always noticed them. And and that was very, very comforting for me. And when when I was growing up, my father and I had a turbulent relationship because we clashed culturally because I went to a British school and my parents were Indian. My parents are Hindu and they wanted me to embrace Hindu values and I rejected the Hindu values. Um, Things like when I was was in my late teens, early 20s, they wanted me to have an arranged marriage and I didn't want to. And finally, they did arrange a marriage for, for me, which I ran away from. And so it had brought a lot of shame to my family and my community. So I'd always felt that I'd let my father down and I'd never been the daughter that he had hoped or expected me to be, that I was never um, Indian enough and and, and so on and, and never did what was expected from my culture. But here in this realm, all I experienced from my father and for my father was pure, unconditional love. There was no judgment, none whatsoever. Hmm. You
0: know, this is a a beautiful place for us to pause just so people can really feel into that unconditional love. There's so much more about your near-death experience that I want our listeners to hear. And then I really want them to hear about this miraculous healing as well. So we are here, we're talking with Anita Morjani. And she is a best-selling New York Times best-selling author. And we're talking about her beautiful experience. Dying to be me is the name of the book. We're going to take a quick break when we return so much more.
1: Sassy! Sassy! This week's episode Bobcat in the Cave. Gosh, Johnny! Playing in the cave sure is neat! Oh boy, a kitty cat! <laughs> Sassy? The
0: kitty cat's yelling! <coughs> what, Sassy? It's not a kitty? It's a bobcat?
1: <coughs>
0: Speaking of cats, you like to stress the importance of adopting
1: cats from animal shelters? <coughs> Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year? And with millions of healthy cats to choose from, it's a shame more people don't adopt from shelters? This bobcat's heavy. Help, Sassy!
0: Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow. What's that supposed to mean? Oh, nuts.
1: Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Come to the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn or babysit. I saw lizards and squirrels and ducks. Ladybugs, caterpillars. It's really cool, actually. A place where you don't have to make time for free time. Lots and lots of kinds of species here. Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the other you. The enchanted you. It's magic what flowers do. The adventurous you. My favorite tree, yes, that one. The free-to-be-me you. (laughs) Ask your parents to take you to this not-so-far-away place. Come to the forest, where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council.
0: Have you ever lost a cat? And have you ever wanted to get your cat back after you lost it? Hi there, I'm Andrew Hoffman. I went on this website called inventnow.org. Then I decided to make an invention of my own. It's called the Lost Cat Magnet Invention. So you can get your cat back after you lost it. Just turn it on and lost cats stick to it that's a good cat if your cat was hiding up in a tree it won't be up a tree anymore it will be stuck to the lost cat magnet and sometimes they fly toward you in the air just listen to one satisfied cat see
1: that's proof you should go to the inventnow.org website too but just remember one thing don't do a lost cat magnet anything's possible
0: keep thinking get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org brought to you by the u.s patent and trademark office the national inventors hall of fame foundation and the ad council now back to the dr julie show all things connected on empower radio welcome back if you're inspired by our conversation today and want to share it with others or maybe just listen to it again Please visit our website, thedrjulieshow.com, where you'll find all the archives and also our list of upcoming guests. So please, again, tune in. That's thedrjulieshow.com. And stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie. We are here with bestselling author Anita Morjani. And we're talking about her book, Dying to Be Me. And Anita, I want to make sure that our listeners know how to find you before we go back into this conversation. Your website is anitamorjani.com. Anita, A-N-I-T-A-M-O-O-R-J-A-N-I.com. And you're also on Facebook and other social media. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. On Facebook, Twitter, all of it, Instagram. So yes, they can find me on, on all of this, these media. And on Facebook, I also have some discussion groups, which I'm sure they can find once they find my main author page.
0: Okay. Excellent. Well, I know you have some exciting things coming up too, but I, I really want to get back to, we've talked about the life and now the death story. And there's, there's so much here. You know, you have a lot of, um, really beautiful insights that come from a near-death experience. But I think one of the most fascinating things about your story is the miraculous healing. Um, but you are in this altered state of consciousness. You're aware of what's going on around you. You're in a 30-hour coma. And you're able to yes. see your brother on a plane. You're able to see the the doctors talking to your family. So you're able to put your awareness on other things, and all of a sudden, be in this expanded place. So let's let's move from that to then, what happens
1: next, and why did you choose to come back? Well, um, my uh, my father. Well, I reached a point so. So of course, there's a lot that happens there. And and I understood, I I reached, a, I understood, so I'd like to say I entered this state of clarity. It was a, being in that state was like waking up from a bad dream. Because while I was sick and dying and feeling more and more discomfort when my body was dying, every day I would wish I woke up and that it was a bad dream. And it turned out it wasn't it was true i would wake up every day with this discomfort but being in that state was like waking up from a bad dream it didn't feel like life it felt like i had woken up and that life was the dream and it was an amazing state of clarity where i understood why i had the cancer and i understood it was like i my whole life made sense I understood why everything that happened had happened to me, and I realized that um, the cancer didn 't didn't uh, didn 't didn't come to kill me; it came to save my life because I was already killing myself with all my fears and my self hatred and and being a doormat for everyone and Then I reached a point where I felt my father telling me that this is as far as you can go, and if you go any further, you won't be able to turn around and go back. Um, You will be going into death, like permanently. And I felt, though, that I didn't want to go back. So I I said that I didn't want to turn around. I didn't want to go back into my body because there was no reason to go back into my body. My body was suffering and dying. My family was suffering. I couldn't see any good reason to go back. But then I felt my father, and in fact, my best friend who I'd lost to cancer, she was there as well. And it was like I had reunited with my loved ones. And I felt them saying to me that now that you know the truth of who you really are, um, you need to go back and experience the gifts of life. That now that you know this truth, your body will actually heal very, very quickly And it was in that moment that I thought that, that I realized that I had these gifts. And if I chose to stay in that realm and not come back into my body, I would be wasting the gifts. In other words, I had suffered and, and as a result of the suffering, there were some gifts waiting for me here. If I chose to come back and if I, didn't come back, I would be wasting the suffering that I had gone through. And there was a purpose in all of the suffering that I had already experienced. And so in that moment, I realized that now that I knew this truth, and I knew that my body was going to heal rapidly, that um, I knew that I needed to make the choice to come back. I also felt my husband and my purpose was linked. And I felt that if I didn't come back, um, he would also not have his purpose and something would happen to him maybe six months, a year down the road and and that he would also cross over. And for me, that was not a bad thing because from that realm, um, crossing over is not seen as a bad thing. It's so beautiful there. And I understood that we are never without our loved ones. They're always with us, even when I'm here in the physical The ones that have deceased are still with me. And that's what I learned. And so in that moment when I made the decision that I had to go back into my body, knowing that my body would heal and knowing that I had things to do, um, as soon as I made the decision, I started to come out of the coma. I started to open my eyes. And at first when I opened my eyes, I was really, really delirious. I'd been in the coma for about 30, 36 hours Um, I'd gone in the coma at 9 a.m. on February the 2nd, and I came out of it around 4 p.m. on February the 3rd. And I was delirious, and it was like I had one foot on each side. And I started to say things like, Dad is here, and Dad said, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And of course, my family thought I was just delirious, but they were so happy that um, i 'd opened my eyes and I was coming out of the coma and my brother was there. he had arrived from india he 'd got off the plane and he was right there and I was in the intensive care unit with all these tubes connected to me oxygen and heart tubes and all kinds of things and um, and um, so I was like really delirious and they were ecstatic and they called a the doctor and when the doctor came in, he was a doctor that Uh, was on duty in the hospital, and I had never seen him before. I went into the coma, but when he came into the room, I just said to him, good afternoon, Dr. Chan, and he said, how do you know my name? And I said, oh, aren't you the one that took the fluid out of my lungs at around 4 or 5 a.m. this morning? And he said, but you were in a coma. How could you even have known that? And he seemed very surprised, and then he said, he, and I kept saying to him um, that I know I'm going to be okay. You can start taking the tubes out. And he thought I was really delirious. And so uh, he told my family that it was the drugs acting up and, you know, making me say all these things. And basically he told them that I was still very, very critical and not to raise their hopes. And it happens sometimes that people go in and out of the coma. Hmm. but. Um, A few hours later, I was still awake and things were getting a bit clearer. And then the following day, I wanted to sit up and I started to tell my family what had happened. I said, dad came to me. He said, it's not my time. Um, My purpose is not fulfilled yet. And I know I'm going to be fine. I know I understood why I got the cancer. And I started saying all this. And um, the doctors were getting shocked because I, I started to not need... The breathing tube and within four days, my tumors shrunk by 60%. And, and the, the feeling I had within me was that I was already healed, but my physical body just had to catch up. And I just kept telling everyone, I am fine. I'm going to be fine. Take out the tubes. But the doctors wouldn't believe it. And I was still very weak. So they kept on running tests. They did all kinds of biopsies and uh, and within three weeks, they could find no trace of cancer in my body. They still wouldn't let me go because I was still a little weak, but within five weeks, I was strong enough to be released from the hospital and they let me go home to live my life cancer-free.
0: Wow. So within three weeks, no trace of the cancer and modern medicine would just shake their head and go what just happened here and you knew you knew so let's describe what was that 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 healed you and i and i i'm going to put this in a in a different context because a lot of times um with with what we know about energy and energy medicine as well as once someone can be in this pure state of consciousness of that perfection of who we are, um, th- there's a healing quality about that. And so I'm just really curious from, from your perspective, how did the body follow this complete healing
1: It's a beautiful question, and you're one of the first people to ask me that and and phrase it in that way, and that is amazing because what I truly believe is that when we are in that pure state of consciousness, I mean, this is why we talk about letting go and meditation and all this. When we are in that pure state of consciousness, there is no room for disease. We are fully balanced and aligned. But one of the um, one of the things, one of the hesitations I have in saying, even saying what I just said, is that it then feels almost judgmental towards the ones who are currently going through disease and struggling with trying to rid their body of the disease, because we then feel, oh my God what am I doing wrong? Why am I not able to raise my consciousness or attain that pure state where I can be rid of this disease? And so, so this is why language is, can be such a hindrance because I want people to know that there is no judgment towards people who have disease. It's really not your fault. It's a journey. Um, the disease is there. It is there to give us a message. It's not something you've done wrong. It's not something you're not getting right. But um, the thing is that sometimes disease does come along to tell us that change our path. And one of the things I ask people to do, and I, I just want to be very sensitive in the way I articulate this, is that to stop, and I ask this people to do this, is to stop doing and just start going inward and start being because even in the pursuit of trying to get that elevated state, we get stuck on the technique of getting there rather than the actual being there. And it's in the technique. I mean, it's it's in the being stuck in the technique of anything, of trying to attain wellness, trying to get into these deeper states, of trying to do this to get rid of illness. It's in that doing that the fear is, and I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but it's in the pursuit that the fear lies. It's driven by fear. It's driven by fear of the illness. And the interesting thing is that healing can come when we see perfection even in the illness, when we can be comfortable with the illness because the very pursuit of healing is fear driven and as soon as we are in that fear driven place we are no longer being we're no longer coming from the heart we're no longer in that purity we have suddenly shifted to the mind and we've shifted to the place where i got to do this i got to do this and we're in that place of control control is fear so any form of technique pursuit is a form of control and trying to get something and sending the message to our body that where I am right now is not perfect. Where my body is right now is not perfect. It is in the total acceptance, the total acceptance where the gold lies.
0: So, it's almost just a relaxing into what is in that moment and just being with that. What would you say to someone? I have someone in mind in particular, sending love to that person right in this moment. What would you say to someone who is feeling so disconnected from that higher level of consciousness and that place of peace because of physical pain? I'm um, post surgical very serious illness what would you say to someone that's really having a hard time just relaxing into that place and and feeling this disconnection this this aloneness
1: um, there are several things I would um, I would say to that person first of all my sense would be that um, their mind is not relaxed because they don't love or value themselves, that's one. And they need to start by feeling that they are deserving and worthy of healing. And I have a lot of different things that I uh, tell people on how to do that. One of them is to say things like, uh, what would I be doing if I did love myself? You know, if it's too much of a stretch for you to feel that you do love yourself, you can pretend you love yourself and ask yourself, what would I be doing if I did love myself? So basically increase your self-love and and know that you've, uh, you are deserving and worthy of healing is number one. Number two is spend time with people who uplift you because a lot of times people like that um, are usually in an environment where the people around them or the work they do uh, are not conducive to their well-being and maybe there's some part of them that devalues themselves or feels that it's selfish for me to move on or move away from this or out of fear they're staying in that particular environment or surrounding. So they need to move on from that and be surrounded by people who are uplifting. One thing that does happen is that when you are around people who have a certain very uplifting energy, you can be healed just by being in their energy, when you are someone who has that kind of energy, you can heal other people just by being in proximity with them for prolonged periods of time. Um, and so, and and the thing is, because this um, energy I'm talking about, energy is such an overused word. It just doesn't feel right, but I don't have anything better right now. But this, um, what I'm talking about, transcends words. It's that connection that we're talking about. It's, the, it's when um, the finger who is, has got a cut in it does not think that the finger itself, that I, the finger, have to have all the resources to heal from the cut, but realizes that the resources are going to come not just from the hand, but the arm but the, and the body. The body has the, the heart to pump the blood and heal it. So when we start to realize that the resources are going to come from all around us, we allow them to come. What happens is when we're living in fear, we pinch that off. We become so, um, you know, when you're in fear, your body kind of, closes off, it it kind of goes into a control mode, like a fight or flight mode. It pinches off that universal energy from entering you. So I would tell the person who's going through an illness, do whatever it takes to leave the fear behind, to let go of the fear, whether it takes meditation um, and don't worry about getting it right. Um, Even in trying to follow a technique, it comes out of fear. There's no wrong way to do it. Just relax, just meditate, just allow, allow yourself to be, allow the universe to work its magic through you. That's what Mm -hmm. I tell them. And if they need to take medication or something, uh, once they allow the universe to work through them, the right medication, whether it's chemical based or herbal based, the right medication will be presented to them um, at the right time by the right people.
0: Mm. You know, I could, I could spend a whole nother hour really digging into that and, and really um, bringing this message really prescriptive for people because there's so much right here, but you also had some really powerful lessons of what you've learned from all of this. And I'm just curious, Anita, how this has changed your worldview and, and maybe if you can offer some, some global hope for us of, mm-hmm. of who we are as a humanity and where we're going. What has this done for your, your, your perspective of the world and who we are and where we're going?
1: <laughs> it's changed my perspective of the world because I know that we're all connected and it's made me see that a lot of the things we're doing um, is completely senseless. And, um, you know, what they say about an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. What we don't realize is that when we react to enemies in the way that we've been conditioned to, which is to get even or to get stronger or to fight back, it doesn't work. The only thing that works is love. And that is the one thing that being in that other realm taught me is that the answer to everything. Single problem in the world is love and that is the only answer and we can only change the world through love at every level and I know everybody is fearing terrorism at the moment our governments instill fear in us um, the the way that I would heal the world is that all those people that join terrorist groups and all those people that join armies to fight the terrorist groups. Those people that join these groups, they are young, young men and women. They are youth who are vulnerable, who are forgotten by society, who've been left behind. And they become vulnerable to join such groups when charismatic leaders come and ask them to join because they've been left behind and forgotten and vulnerable. Um, They have no reason to live. So these groups come and give them a reason to die. I would ask governments, go in there and get those young and vulnerable people before the terrorists do. Get in there and teach them something productive. Teach them to love and value themselves. Teach them that they matter and they can do something good with themselves. Get them before um, the ones that you don't want to get them. Get them first and give them hope. Give them life. The only way to heal the problems in our world is through love and through peace. It's not about fighting terror with terror. And it's the same with illness. It's not about fighting illness with more fear and, and because our medical system also operates on fear and always going after illnesses. It's about teaching people more about what it means to be healthy and well and whole, mind, body, and spirit. It's also not about just manipulating the physical because we t- tend to exchange medicine for um, for herbal and natural, but we still are obsessed with our bodies and, and manipulating the physical—it's beyond that. It's—it's it's not the physical; it's something that is on our consciousness level. It's realizing that only love works, and that we're all connected. And—and—and mm. and, and that is something I would like to tell everybody: whether it's governments, whether it's people in medicine, whether it's people in education, stop teaching our kids to compete with each other and and to feel they need to get ahead with every of everyone else. We need to teach our kids to collaborate. We need to teach our kids empathy. We're not separate. We're connected. And the reason that we have all these issues is because we're actually connected, but we don't realize it.
0: Yeah, your last couple of minutes, I just want to just just rest in that awareness. It's so beautiful. And it's this, this really potent prescription for us as a humanity. I see so many parallels from what you've spoken about your individual healing and how you were treating yourself. I mean, you were being your own self terrorist and letting everyone else um, contribute to your self destruction before the cancer, and then going into that state of being and understanding, it just seems like a beautiful parallel to put those two together. So thank you so much for sharing that. We just have a few minutes, Anita, and I really Uh want to make sure that you have just a moment to talk about some upcoming events. I think you have an event coming up in Chicago and then you also have a new book coming out and I just want to, I'm excited. We only have a few minutes, but can you tell us about
1: that? Yes, I have a new book coming out. It's called What If This is Heaven? and But that'll be out uh, a little later in the year, just after the summer. And it is it is about creating heaven on earth right here, because in my first book, I do talk about heaven being a state, and it is possible to live in that state here while we're here in the physical. So I'm excited about my second book. And I have a lot of events coming up. Uh, the next one's coming up in Seattle and also, I have one in in Denver, but if you look on my website, uh, they're all there. The one in Seattle is with my publishers, Hay House, and there'll be many other speakers, and that should be fun. But I would love, love, love to see you at my events because I love meeting my audience face-to-face.
0: Mm. Well, thank you for that invitation. We will spread that around, and we will also be spreading this good news Um And thank you for sharing your story because this does give hope to so many. And you, um, Mm -hmm. the story couldn't be more grave than where you were with these huge tumors in your body and 85 Mm. pounds. And it's amazing. So I'm so honored to be talking with you today. And I just... Wish you so many more blessings in getting this word out and especially creating heaven on earth. What if this is heaven? I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Thank you for joining (laughs) us
1: today. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. This was fun. You asked really beautiful questions. Thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. I we could do this again, so we're gonna to have to make sure we do it when the next book comes out, if not before, because there's just so much really important, good stuff right here with your story. So, again, I want to thank you and and thank the listeners for tuning in. And of course, you can always connect with me on my website. Just go to thedrjulieshow dot com. Thank you, thank you for listening today. And you know, together. We can create greater connectivity, and that's always a good thing for the greater good of the whole. So, until next time, I'm wishing you conscious love and connection, and of course, this conscious health that we're talking about. We'll see you next week. Bye bye.